biggest surprises of the TV season in 2017 was the TV adaptation of Lethal Weapon. As a rule, TV versions of popular films don't tend to be terribly successful, and for every MASH or Alien Nation, there's a Private Benjamin or a Blue Thunder. In addition, the Lethal Weapon film series is beloved by so many that the deck was stacked against the producers before dealing has even begun. Lethal Weapon, however, turned out to be that rare beast, a TV adaptation that wasn't only as good in its own right, but one that exceeded my, admittedly, low expectations. More unusually, it's actually an improvement on the source material. Little Weapon takes the characters and situations familiar from the movies, with the bonus of brand recognition, so beloved by film companies, but deepens the relationships and characterization, while still filling each episode with enough high-octane lunacy to keep the action fans happy. Little Weapon took me completely by surprise. I checked it out for one reason only. It was the first foreign import to be given a prime-time slot on a major UK network in years, and that intrigued me. ITV took a big gamble with Lethal Weapon, and it paid off for them, scoring decent ratings on a competitive night. Critics have been a bit sniffy, but word of mouth has been generally positive, giving Lethal Weapon a relatively high profile, and proving imported television isn't necessarily a bad thing. Something I've been saying for years. Lethal Weapon's big stumbling block to begin with was the casting. Casting is always an almost alchemical process anyway, but in this case, the actors were filling some pretty big boots. In the special features on the Blu-ray, producer Matt Miller talks about how they all met with Richard Donner, the director of the original Lethal Weapon movies, to discuss the project and let him see a few scripts. Donner was complimentary and liked what he read, but he threw the producers a curve when he asked, who have you cast as the leads? As of that meeting, they hadn't cast anyone, and Donner sagely advised them that with this project, if they don't have the guys... They don't have a show. Recasting Roger Murtaugh turned out to be relatively simple. Damon Wayans had recently had medical issues of his own, and once he read the script and saw the parallels to his own life, he was in. Casting Martin Riggs proved to be far more difficult. After screen testing tons of actors, the producers happened to spot Clayne Crawford in a small independent movie, and on the back of that, arranged to see him. His on-screen chemistry with Wayans was evident from the get-go, and the series had its guys. As the season opens, Roger Mayfield Murtaugh is no longer five minutes away from retirement, but is still in rough shape. Murtaugh is returning to work after a heart attack and subsequent bypass surgery, and is warned by all to take it easy. To his chagrin, his take-it-easy plan is thwarted when he finds himself paired with a Texan transfer, former Marine Martin Riggs. Arguably, Riggs was the harder role to cast than Murtaugh. To many, Mel Gibson is Martin Riggs, but Clayne Crawford keeps all the suicidal tics and burly restrained madness of the character, but manages to ground it in a deep and profound loss that makes us feel for him. As in the films, Riggs's pregnant wife died in a car accident, and he's borderline crazy with grief. He's clearly suffering from a severe depression that informs everything he does. This is given more play in the series than the films, as there are numerous flashbacks throughout the first season, developing Riggs and his wife Miranda's relationship. 
These flashbacks normally coincide with Riggs drinking excessively and eating the barrel of a gun, suicide clearly on his mind. It goes without saying that, as this is a TV show, there is more to Miranda's death than meets the eye. Supergirl's Floriana Lima plays Miranda, and the chemistry between her and Clayne is palpable, showing not only how the love of a good woman kept Riggs on the straight and narrow, but also kept him sane. The heart of the show, though, is the friendship between Murtaugh and Riggs. The two have such an easy-going camaraderie that, as the season develops, you've forgotten that two other actors ever played these parts. Riggs also becomes a part of Murtaugh's family, kind of another son for them to look after, and the family angle is also fleshed out considerably. Murtaugh's wife, Trish, played by Keisha Sharp, is a lawyer with a highly lucrative firm, and it's her income that keeps the family afloat. The kids all get episodes devoted to them, and we see the Murtaugh's parenting skills succeed and fail as the series goes on, making them a believable family unit. These aren't the Huxtables. They make mistakes sometimes in both their marriage and child-rearing, and this makes them relatable, despite their obvious high-class status and massive house. Murtaugh used to be partners with captain of the department Brooks Avery, played by Kevin Rahm, and this also gives him a connection to the family. Murtaugh and Avery's partnership and friendship is the source of a number of episodes, and it's nice to see the captain, normally a thankless role in these things, given a depth not normally seen. Supporting cast are also fleshed out with regular appearances by Michelle Michendor as Sonia Bailey and the coroner Scorsese, played by Jonathan Hernandez, so named because he went to film school and is constantly working on his screenplay. Jordana Brewster segues in nicely from the Fast and the Furious franchise as Riggs' psychiatrist Maureen Cahill. Of course, the Lethal Weapon series needs more than just colourful characters. It needs heaping gobs of action, and on that score, the show delivers. Each episode has a ridiculous set piece that is made all the more ballsy for being as practical as 21st century filmmaking will allow. Cars are blown up, gunfights fought and buildings leapt out of as Riggs creates an orgy of destruction wherever he goes, normally to Murtaugh and Avery's disgust and the LAPD's cost. This is highlighted in the pilot episode, which is available as two versions on the Blu-ray. The extended cut isn't really much to write home about, as the extension amounts to about 50 seconds and two occurrences of the F-word. What the pilot does do is retell the movie's main plot points succinctly and efficiently, with humour and pathos. Wayans and Crawford own their roles from the get-go, and the series subverts cliché every chance it gets. Unlike other cop dramas, the cost of Riggs' explosive rampages are a running gag, and Riggs and Murtaugh's boss is sympathetic and understanding while still busting their chops when necessary, unlike other cop bosses who just shout and look like they're about to have a heart attack. It is revealed that the head of the police is Miranda's father, who is high enough up the food chain to keep Riggs on the force, explaining why Avery is stuck with him. Avery's decision to pair him with Murtaugh, though, is explained as deliberate. Avery believes Murtaugh will be good for Riggs, something borne out over the course of the season. The main plot point of the pilot, as with all pilots, is secondary to the introduction of the characters, and involves Riggs and Murtaugh investigating a suicide that wasn't. For this release, there are a number of deleted scenes that they could easily have dropped back in, as none of them are really superfluous, and they would have made this extended edition more notable. Episode 2, Surf and Turf, has Riggs and Murtaugh investigate gun running, but the emotion is bumped up by Riggs having to deal with a pregnant woman, with more revelations about the Murtaughs and why they have a third child so late in life. Their adoption of Riggs is also well played, and director McGee directs the action sequences with his customary aplomb. 
A humorous subplot comes from Murtaugh, who is under pressure to keep Riggs under control after the expenses incurred in the last episode. The early part of the season manages to balance the procedural nature of the crime of the week plots with character development. There goes the neighbourhood as Riggs and Murtaugh investigate a spate of burglaries in Murtaugh's upper class area, a situation that is brought uncomfortably close to home for Murtaugh when his son, RJ, is picked up speeding with another black kid. Murtaugh's palpable sense of unease when he discovers what's happened is expertly played, as he explains to Riggs the inherent dangers of a black kid being pulled over by a Caucasian policeman in a nice area. It also shows the growth between Riggs and Murtaugh's family, when RJ calls Riggs before he calls Murtaugh when he gets into trouble, a situation that does not go down too well with Roger. Best Buds involves the cartel and Murtaugh's old training officer. The best of the early episodes is Spilt Milk, an intense look at veterans returning home with PTSD. Murtaugh and Riggs' investigations lead them to a pharmaceutical company, but the case turns personal for Riggs when the central protagonist, Chad, played by True Blood's Michael Raymond James, is revealed to be a former Navy SEAL like Riggs. Once again, there's a player on the other side vibe to the plot, but here it's beautifully played by all, and Spilt Milk avoids cliché, handling its subject matter sensitively. Fashion Police has Riggs and Murtaugh crash a DEA party and introduces Hilary Burton as Agent Karen Palmer, a character that will reoccur as the series goes forth. Riggs is even more completely loopy than usual in this one, largely because he's attracted to Palmer and the moonlighting style back and forth between the two are undeniably fun. Can I Get a Witness has Riggs protecting an eight-year-old who is the LAPD's only witness to a murder and gets a lot of mileage out of Riggs being forced to play daddy. Up till now, the series has been happy to use the extra time afforded a TV series to develop the character arcs, but has stuck with reasonably closed-off police procedural style done-in-one stories. The characters have been defined now. Murtaugh is becoming increasingly frustrated by Riggs. Riggs is clearly borderline insane with grief and a depressive, but he's slowly developing ties. Riggs is a severely damaged character, living on a stretch of beach where his wife grew up living an unhealthy and self-destructed lifestyle. He admits to Carhill that he's thought about suicide more than once. It would have been easy for the show to continue in this vein, at least for the entirety of the first season, but the writers and producers elect to do the opposite, and for the next two episodes, they start to stretch their legs. The seeds that Miranda's death may not have been an accident are first planted in ties that bind, but this seems to be a red herring. However, Jingle Bell Glock brings these plot threads back and gives us a more depressive Riggs than ever before. This should have been Riggs's first Christmas as a father, and a case that links a drug runner to his uncle in Texas just makes the holiday period more difficult for him. It's a tense and exciting episode with some beautifully written setup that pays off wonderfully as it continues. Homebodies finally sees Cahill recognise that Riggs is a depressive and ties it into a story of a young lady who's developed a thoroughly legal drug that gets clubbers high. It also ties in thematically to Riggs's unsocial attitude. It's another good show, but not as good as Lawmen, where Theo Huxtable reveals a secret in Captain Brooks's past that could result in a major scandal. Back when he and Murtaugh were partners, Brooks fiddled evidence to imprison a man who did actually commit a serious crime who was about to get off on a technicality. Theo is now threatening to expose this, and the ramifications could throw a spotlight on all 400 arrests that Murtaugh and Brooks made together, resulting in them all being overturned. Murtaugh elects to keep Brooks' secret, which leads to a tense standoff. 
Demonstrating how good Lethal Weapon has become at fleshing out all the characters, this story also makes us like Brooks even more, even with, or perhaps because of, the flaws in his backstory. Brotherly Love tackles Faith, and The Seal is Broken tackles Riggs's alcoholism. This is another area that the series scores. We see heroes on TV drink all the time, James Bond being the most notorious example, but both Raylan and Boyd in Justified necked at least three whiskies a day for breakfast, and rarely is this followed up on. Babylon 5 had an alcoholic character, and Cagney and Lacey tackled Christine Cagney's reliance on the booze, but Riggs has been drinking morning, noon and night, and not even making a secret of it. We've seen him wake up, barely recalling what he did the night before, sack out on Roger's cows because he's too damn drunk to get home, and even pass out naked on the beach. This time, though, his alcohol dependency is because he feels guilty that, in a drunken haze, he had a one-night stand with a girl whose name he doesn't even know. In Riggs's head, this is tantamount to cheating on Miranda, and his guilt is such that he's even more destructive than when he lost his wedding ring at the end of Brotherly Love. Riggs finally turns a corner here, abstaining from alcohol by the end of the show. This is what I really like about Lethal Weapon. Despite the action, comedy and humour, there's real heart at the centre of this show, and the series has been incredibly good at tackling grief and loss. It's a shame that the show will undoubtedly be overlooked at the Emmys because the writing and acting in these moments have been sublime. Now, I'm not saying that the series is perfect. The writers frequently sacrifice logic for drama, and I'm unsure exactly what jurisdiction Riggs and Mortar patrol, but making a show more dramatic at the expense of a real-life piece of police work isn't the worst crime a show can commit. Likewise, the alcoholism isn't just swept under the table with this episode, and Riggs will be on the wagon and fall off it on occasion for the rest of the run. The Murtaugh file finally gives Jordana Brewster centre stage as Riggs' shrink, Maureen Cahill. One of the best things about the show is its ensemble cast. Brooks is an out gay man and married to his husband. Bailey is a rookie Murtaugh, but with an incredible attitude. Scorsese is witty and dry in the best tradition of coroners on TV, and Cruz is a former gang member trying to make it as a police officer. Cahill is by far the weakest character on paper. It's not Brewster's fault. The extent of Cahill's character development so far is that she likes surfing. In this episode, her boyfriend is killed, leading Riggs and Murtaugh to investigate, and they quickly learn she has a stalker. It's a lesser episode, more concerned with the humour of Riggs learning Murtaugh had to see Cahill for a short time, and being curious why. It does succeed in making Cahill more interesting, though, largely because Brewster is engaging as an actress, but also because of the hint that she and Riggs have... something... Not a romantic connection per se, but definitely a connection. This is followed by As Good As It Gets, in which the series brings in one of the movie's most memorable characters and recasts him as significantly less annoying. Thomas Lennon steps into Joe Pesci's size fours and does a great job of making Leo a likeable character, with failings and character traits identifiable to all. He proves invaluable when DEA agent Palmer returns and the two cases involving the cartel become intertwined. Riggs and Palmer's relationship is sparky, again very Maddie and David, and everybody is picking up on the vibe, except Riggs, who is aware of something, but is burying those feelings deep. Another great episode enlivened by Murtaugh telling Riggs that it's okay to feel something for another woman. It helps that Palmer and Riggs have amazing chemistry together, and Riggs ends up doing his favourite things with her, eating cheese out of a can and leaping out of a helicopter. By this point, the show has developed all its characters and subplots well enough that the supporting characters were able to carry plot lines. 
Murtaugh and his wife Trish were given obstacles to overcome, from Murtaugh's pacemaker troubles to Trish packing her job in after not feeling appreciated. And Riggs has turned a corner with his abstinence from alcohol, leading to a physical relationship with Palmer. The series heads into its first season finale with confidence. Unnecessary roughness takes time to give Murtaugh more backstory, with his potential to be a college athlete, but the real fun here is Riggs' discomfort at everyone else interest in his relationship with Palmer. For the most part, though, this story of college football scholarships had little interest for me, being as I really don't care about football, whether it be American or British, and I have trouble understanding the fascination with college football generally, but the character interplay was enough to keep me interested. A problem like Maria drags the cartel storyline back to the fore as Riggs and Murtaugh help Palmer protect a woman and her baby, whose daddy is a high muckety-muck in the organisation. Full of the ridiculous banter and interplay we've come to expect, the episode is also surprisingly emotional, with Riggs being especially susceptible to children in trouble, as we've seen a few times this season. It's almost textbook in how it blends character arcs, overarching plots, humour, action and the case of the week, even if the case of the week aspect proves to be wholly predictable. There's a leak in the DEA, and if you don't figure out who it is the minute they appear on screen, you don't watch enough TV. The finale subverts the usual Lethal Weapon-style ending, giving us a quiet moment where Palmer reveals to Riggs she's been looking into Miranda's death. Whilst the reveal that the cartel were involved isn't a massive surprise, it's a nice storytelling stroke to have Riggs' feet whipped out from under him, just as he seemed to be getting his life together. Commencement brings all the dangling threads from the season to a head. Palmer's file links Gideon from the last episode to Tito Flores from Jingle Bell Glock and ties them together alongside the reveal of who killed Miranda and why. It's a pretty large-ranging conspiracy plot involving Miranda's father, and one of the reasons Miranda was killed was because of her dad rather than Riggs. It's a pretty heavy episode. Riggs crosses major lines, breaking Gideon out of jail just so he can torture him himself, and it's a credit to Murtaugh and the writers that Roger spots that this breakout had Riggs written all over it. All of the progress Cahill has made with Riggs over the past half a season is chucked out the window as he sets out on a full-on self-destructive revenge spree. As usual, it's the interplay between the duo that makes this whole endeavour worthwhile. The stunts and action would only carry us so far if we didn't have fleshed-out, likeable characters, and Murtaugh's reaction to what Riggs has done is sold by Wayans' performance. It all culminates in a cliffhanger as Riggs heads to Mexico to destroy Flores and his cartel cell once and for all, a mission from which he doesn't expect to return. All told, the first season of Lethal Weapon was a massive surprise and a huge joy. Not expecting much from the show may have helped, but the confidence displayed in taking a popular film franchise and reinventing it as a successful TV show and then improving upon it was pretty ballsy. Wayans and Crawford are Murtar and Riggs now, and if the oft-mooted Lethal Weapon 5 ever actually happens, it'll find itself in the rare position of not only competing with itself and the warm nostalgic glow that many people hold those movies in their hearts, but with a TV spin-off that has more than proved itself worthy. It's also a show that handled its diverse cast beautifully, fleshing out all the characters, not just the leads, and balances the drama and humour brilliantly. It's been a long time since we've had a Starsky and Hutch on screen, so until James Gunn's mooted take on that property hits the air, this'll do nicely. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. 
And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. And we're back with the email sack. I always like rummaging through a good sack. I love it when a podcast comes together, comes from Tom Panaris. Andy, I just finished listening to the episode of Palace featuring the A-Team, which was another great look at a classic action series from the 1980s, even if you had to play the off-brand version of the show's theme song from the final season. As I was listening, however, I came to realise something which is that I don't think I've seen very many episodes of the show. In fact, as you've talked about a number of different action shows from the 70s and 80s, my memories of what I have seen and haven't are incredibly fuzzy. I definitely remember Knight Rider, Erwolf and the A-Team, but for the life of me I can't remember the plot of a single episode. At best, I remember flashes of the opening credit sequence, and that's about it. I remember watching the show a few times when FX re-ran it in the late 1990s, but those fuzzy memories are probably due to all the beer I drank in college. <laughs> and not just in college, I'll wager. I think this might be due to my age. While I was alive at the time these shows aired, I was born in 1977, so I would have been younger than 10 when the A-Team was first run. My parents enforced a strict 8 o'clock bedtime, with the exception of one or two shows I was allowed to stay up late for, and I remember choosing The Dukes of Hazard and The Greatest American Hero. The latter, I'm pretty sure, was a Stephen J. Cannell show, and it would be another Stephen J. Cannell show, 21 Jump Street, that became appointment television for me a number of years later. One day I will do my own episode of that show as soon as I track down the final season on DVD. Please do. Yes, The Greatest American Hero was part of the Cannell stable, and as you point out, was 21 Jump Street. I would like to hear the 21 Jump Street episode, uh, mainly because I never saw 21 Jump Street. Um, if memory serves, that started airing in the early 90s. And at that point, British television was moving away from having a lot of imported stuff in prime time. And we were also at that point juncture tv was taking one of its left turns as it does occasionally with the introduction of cable television into most people's houses thanks to rupert murdoch and sky and i believe 21 jump street ended up on sky which would explain why i never saw it tom continues also, I don't know if I said this aloud to you already or in my head, as I often do, but when I think about watching television in the 90s, 80s and list the non-animated shows, most of them are sitcoms. While you were making your way through shows starring Mr. T and the Hoff, I was seeing Mr. T and the Hoff guest star on different strokes and watching reruns of The Facts of Life, Growing Pains, Cheers and other half-hour shows. I figure that's because sitcoms were in heavy rotation on my local syndication channels, and I wonder... Were they ever exported overseas the way that dramas and action shows were, and if you ever watched any on a regular basis? Anyway, great show as always, and I'm looking forward to the next one. All the best, Tom. Well, it's interesting that Tom should bring this up, because as I record this, the most recent episode of Tom's show, 
pop culture affidavit, which I consider a colonial cousin of this show, recently did a really very, very good episode where Tom discussed series that have jumped the shark. And he mentioned the Jump the Shark website, which I used to lose myself down for hours um, in uh, the early days of the internet. Um, regarding your question... Oh, sorry, I'm, I say all that to say this. The reason that I mention that is because in that show, Tom covers an awful lot of sitcoms that went, you know, that little bit too far and maybe lost their original appeal in an effort to, to stay on the air. Um... Regarding your question, sitcoms did, American sitcoms, did make it up here. For instance, we did get different strokes and stuff like Small Wonder and, and other shows of that ilk. Happy Days, for instance, was very, very popular. But over here, they all tended to err at 6 o'clock in the evening, 6, 6.30 in the evening. They weren't really deemed prime time. And I think a lot of that is the difference between the sense of humour of uh, an American audience and a British audience. The general feeling was that American sitcoms were very schmaltzy, very sugary, sometimes unpalatably so, often with cringeworthy messages behind them. I mean, you mentioned different strokes in your email when listening to Tom's episode as he's going through the list of very special episodes that Different Strokes did, I'm sat there going, I remember the one where Kimberly's hair turned green because of acid rain, and I remember the one where um, Willis got in trouble for driving without a license or whatever it was. I don't remember the bicycle paedophile episode, and I wonder if that just didn't get shown over here, because it's possible. It's possible they looked at that one and went, <laughs> not for 5.15 in the evening. So some of them did get get screened like that uh, of the other ones that you mentioned the facts of life and growing pains were never aired on british terrestrial television like i say they may have heard on cable um and i think stuff like full house and eight is enough none of that got shown either and like i said because sitcoms were kind of relegated to that ghetto time period the only other place that american sitcoms aired uh, on regular television was after the news at 10.35 at night. A number of the more risque sitcoms that we imported from America would err in that time slot. So Soap erred in that time slot. Uh, Married with Children was probably the most famous one to err in the 10.35 time slot. Um, until Channel 4 came along. Now, Channel 4 in the early 1980s, I think, 1982 83 channel 4 started and they started a, a comedy strand on friday nights and for the first time in a long time american comedy was given a decent time slot on um on a major british television network so channel 4 heard cheers and frasier and friends and roseanne all of those showed heard in the nine ten o'clock time slot on channel 4 and those shows became a hit. Now, I suspect that those shows were a hit for exactly the reason that I mentioned that perhaps the the other end of the spectrum of American sitcoms didn't do well over here. Cheers isn't schmaltzy. Neither's Frasier, neither's Friends. They are occasionally sentimental, but they don't label heaping gobs of sugar 
over certain scenes. None of those shows have cute kids in them. Even Roseanne, the kids were kind of abrasive and obnoxious. And it showed that American sitcoms didn't have to be what we'd always thought they were. And obviously Seinfeld is quite well revered over here. The Larry Sanders show, which was shown on BBC Two, again, late night, but it was shown, was um, was heard over here to great critical acclaim. So there are certain shows, certain sitcoms that did her over here that did very well. And I think for the most part, the purchasers of imported programming did a very good job of picking the ones that would appeal to a British audience. Now, I'm not saying all of our sitcoms are high art or high brow, you know, for every Faulty Towers, which is a, a wonderfully put together farce or of, a, of a high calibre. We have an Are You Being Served, which is smutty, innuendo-laden, edge of the pier, fnaf-nah kind of humour. Um, but ultimately, that I think that's where the main disconnect lay. We didn't like schmaltzy stuff. And so an awful lot of that didn't get over here because it was schmaltzy. But the ones that did were relatively successful. So I hope that answers your question about sitcoms and probably why I won't properly cover them on The Palace. Largely as well because my sense of humour tends towards the very dark. I personally like stuff like The League of Gentlemen and uh, Inside Number 9 and Psychoville Um Obviously, Faulty Towers made me laugh. But even as a kid, uh, I preferred The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, which was quite a dark sitcom about a guy who just wanted to commit suicide because he had enough of his life um, to stuff like, you know, Are You Being Served? And, and shows of that ilk, Please, Sir, and things like that. The only real mainstream comedy that I liked that my parents would watch was The Likely Lads and Dad's Army. Both of which, I think it's telling, have gone on to become oft-repeated um, on BBC4 and, and other channels, uh, whereas Are You Being Served seems to have, have disappeared into the mist. And it's a constant source of amusement to me that American audiences know Are You Being Served. You know, we made a number of great sitcoms. Are You Being Served isn't one of them, I'm sorry to say. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, uh, go and check out Pop Culture Affidavit, particularly this most recent episode, which was, again, tantalently inter interlinked to what we're doing. Excuse me, here on The Palace of Glittering Delight. Our next email is also, I love it when a podcast comes together, which is a very popular title, I think. That comes from Luke Giaconetti. Hi, Luke. Andy, just finished listening to your 18 episode of The Palace on the jazz. Like everyone who was conscious during the 80s here in the West, I remember the 80s and how popular it was. Being as I was a pretty young kid at the time, the show debuted when I was two, I have very few specific memories of watching the show, other than the opening and, oddly, the Say Uncle Affair. Every kid of the 90s, 80s knew that opening and could mimic it a cappella style while running around the playground, so no surprises there. As to the say uncle of her, for whatever reason, I have a specific memory of watching that episode in the downstairs den of my parents' house with my father, who pointed out the man from uncle connection to me, which I'm pretty sure was my introduction to uncle. Why this particular event sticks out in my mind, I do not know. Unfortunately, as I've gotten older, a lot of my memories of childhood seem to be fading into the ether. My brother will tell a story of something from our childhood or even adolescence that he remembers vividly and it will tickle corners of my mind long undisturbed. How others can remember so much and I have seemingly forgotten so much, I cannot say. Probably something more suitable for psychologist than a podcast. 
The aspect of the show I remember the best was the merchandise. My brother had the colour form set, which I remember as playing with quite a lot. I don't know if you guys had colour forms over there, but they were themed sets of vinyl cut like stickers that cling onto a smooth background image without adhesive. Of course, you can reuse them over and over. We did have colour forms. I remember having a colour form set for, um, I think it was Marvel. Marvel characters, and you could place them on the background, like Spider-Man swinging from, from a, a building or something. That I thought was quite fun. The other piece of merchandise I remember well was I had the six-inch Hannibal figure. I don't remember if my brother had anyone. It would have been BA if he did. But whenever I picture the A-team, George Peppard's smiling plastic face is never far from the edges of my mind. One would think that a show like The A-Team would be in constant syndication, especially here in the US, but with the shift towards airing more 30-minute shows, it has been relegated to classic TV networks. Right now, it airs on Cozy TV, which is NBC's classic TV network format typically carried on a digital sub-channel. They have a decent lineup of action shows, including The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and Alias Smith & Jones. Thanks for giving the A-team some care and attention and looking forward to whatever comes down the pike next. Well, next was Lethal Weapon, which I very much hope you enjoyed because uh, it's another cracking action show that I think people should be checking out if they are not doing already. And I've just looked at the link Luke sent me with the plastic action figures. I had Hannibal and BA looking at those. I didn't have Face and Murder. Why, why didn't I have a complete set? What's all that about? Uh, our next email from Chris Franklin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. I have fallen behind in my correspondence. Needless to say, I thoroughly enjoyed your commentary on a mock time, one of Trek's best and a personal favourite. The scene at the end between Kirk, Spock and McCoy is one of my favourite moments between those three on the series. Come on, Spock. Let's go. Mind the store. Is one of Kirk's best casual lines. Trek as its zenith. At its zenith. I didn't quite get into the A-Team too heavily as a kid. I think my mum may have scoffed at the over-the-top violence in it. She didn't forbade me to watch it, but I did get the look a bit, especially during the early seasons. I did enjoy what I saw, and I had the B.A. Baracus figure from Galoob, which Luke just linked me a picture of. I even watched the Mr. T cartoon on NBC. Now on to the latest episode. I did watch Street Hawk. All of it. Why? I have no idea. Like you said, it's nothing too special. A by-the-numbers action show with a touch of sci-fi and superheroics. I guess that's why I watched it. I was starved for anything even remotely comic-related, especially after the greatest American hero left the earth. Rex Smith had hosted the pop music show Solid Gold over here before putting on his motorcycle helmet, so I knew who he was. He was also a singer as well, but who wasn't back then? When he showed up as Daredevil a few years later, I was ready to buy him in the role because of Street Hawk. Again? Why? It was that damn bike and the secret identity angle, I suppose. I totally agree with you on the Superman extended cut. Great to have as a novelty, but never going to replace the original. The Salkins getting paid by the minute necessitated all of the coverage footage in this shot, and it definitely suffers from being reinserted. I much prefer Donna's own director's cut, but other than the train scene with Kirk and Noel Neal, that wonderful gauntlet scene you mentioned, just give me the original. Stuart Bird was one hell of an editor, as I have been rediscovering on Superman Movie Minute with Rob Kelly on the Fire and Water Podcast Network plug fun show as always chris well i'm glad that you plugged that um chris because it was a, a magnificent segue which is oh, totally what i would expect from a, a podcaster of your caliber but um when i started reading that i was going to mention superman movie minute because it's absolutely glorious 
Uh, a very, very fun show which looks at five minutes of Superman the movie from the beginning and on through. And it's absolutely brilliant and I heartily recommend it for people who love that show. Film, sorry. And if you're listening to this, how could you not love Superman the movie? Quite honest. Chris, uh, as you probably heard in the advertisement section has just launched a new podcast with Cindy, which is all about the Justice League cartoon by uh, Bruce Timm. Bruce Timm, and I think Paul Dean was involved with that, but I could be wrong. Uh, well worth listening, even though I've not heard any episodes yet as I record this, because A, it's Chris and Cindy, and number two, it's the Justice League cartoon. How will that not be brilliant? Uh, let's try and barrel through these emails, seeing as the Lethal Weapon episode didn't take as long as I perhaps anticipated it doing so. Hello, comes from Drayson Trenner. There's a weird thing about Street Heart you never knew. In India, Fun School released two Street Heart figures. Sort of. The sort of being they used G.I. Joe, a real American hero part, and later two of the three used a lot of the same ones. In the early 2000s, two of the three versions of Street Heart could easily be found cheap by G.I. Joe fans for about four US dollars. One variant is reportedly a lot more expensive than that now. The Street Hawks came with the first G.I. Joe A Real American motorcycle called the Ram. It's basically a motorcycle with a machine gun attached to one side. So yes, using that and the 3.75 inch A-Team figures of the 80s, you could have Street Heart meet the A-Team and they could all end up fighting ninjas, which all sounds a lot more interesting and inspired than the Street Hawk TV show. Next we have Sharda. Man, that story has had a lot of attempts at retelling or completing it don't have any oddball facts that you didn't already cover. Then the Doctor Who Mr. Man story that was pretty funny, and the Superman three-hour cut is, well, glad you got to see a really good scene that was cut from the film. All the best, Jason. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, next, Gene Hendricks has emailed in. You ever try and turn a motorcycle at 300 miles an hour? Me neither. Andy. I think I was the target audience for Street Heart B9 when it came out, which is probably why I remember it so fondly. I was a huge fan of Erwolf and Knight Rider, so the glossy black super vehicle was essentially a flashing neon sign screaming, Watch this! Is the basic premise kind of silly? Yes, it is. Then again, so is the premise for the A-Team, which you pointed out yourself. I considered this to be a comic book show come to life in an era when there was sadly little of that. Besides, Street Hawk, Kit and Erwolf made up my dream super vehicle team. Now that would have been a worthy TV movie. I can't speak to Sharda, Doctor Forth or the Space 1999 comic, but I was also gifted with the TV cut of Superman the movie this holiday season. Kira and I watched it while she put her Lego DC Superhero Girl sets together. Like you, I thought it was an interesting watch, but ultimately didn't make for a better story. I think the one thing I would have kept would be the transition of Clark and Lois getting into the cab as Otis walks by. The rest of it, while fun to finally see, only really served to either bog down the film or ruin the reveals that were handled much better in the theatrical release. It's probably not one I'll watch much, but it is nice to have it, if just for curiosity's sake. There are some films that I think are made better by an extended cut, although they are fewer in number than the number of extended cuts out there. Star Trek The Motion Picture is one of those, since the added footage actually helps flesh out some of the story and gives some nice character beats. Fellowship of the Ring is another I think is much better in its extended form. The other two Lord of the Rings movies are decent either way, but Fellowship gives you more background and helps the viewer understand the motivations of various hobbits as well as Aragorn. That, young Gene, is an excellent point. Here's the thing, right? Totally agree with you about Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think the Star Trek The Motion Picture extended cut or director's cut, as it is on DVD, where they've tarted up some of the special effects as well, is um, is actually really good. And I do think that's in part why that movie has, has come to be reappraised 
by certain sections of the audience. Not everybody. It's not a film that everybody's going to like, to be honest, after the motion picture. But those that do like it, love it. And I think even some people have had their head turned slightly, maybe not everyone, but slightly, by the fact that the director's cut did slide in a lot more character moments that were excised from the theatrical cut. So yes, Star Trek The Motion Picture can go on the list. Lord of the Rings is a weird one. I never think of those as extended cuts. And the reason for that is I have only ever seen Lord of the Rings, the theatrical cuts in the cinema when they were first released. Watched all three of them, loved all three of them. But I waited until the DVDs of the extended cuts out and that's what I bought. And so I have only ever watched the extended cuts subsequently. And we the kind of films we watch every Christmas. Angela loves Lord of the Rings. So we, we, we watch them every Christmas season. And because of that, I forget that they are the extended cuts. Because what we'll do is we'll watch 90 minutes one night, 90 minutes the next night, and so on and so forth over six nights. So uh, I, I couldn't, for the life of you, tell you what is now in those extended cuts that wasn't in the theatrical versions. And I have thought it would be fun to go back one night and watch the theatrical cuts and see what we think of them where now we think of the extended cuts as being the definitive versions. I don't know how much was added to the final one, Return of the King, but yet the ending goes on for far too long. But I think the ending went on for far too long in the actual cinematic release, so I don't know if that's an additional one. And I just need to move the cat away from my keyboard before he mutes my microphone. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you Lord of the Rings simply because I will say, all right, I'll go with you. Primarily because I do think Fellowship of the Ring is really, really good in its extended form. And I don't remember enough about the theatrical version to disagree with you. So, all right, there's two additional extended cuts that improve the film. Star Trek The Motion Picture, Lord of the Rings, and what I said, which was The Abyss and something else. I can't even remember what it was now. Um, Superman 3 works better as an extended cut, I think. Because all of the cool stuff with... Um, Pat, what's her name? Pamela Stevenson's character. All of that is put back into the film and it actually works. The only place that doesn't work is by having the open titles not be over the slapstick opening. That seems a bit silly. Um, Gene concludes with, I look forward to your eventual Dukes of Hazard coverage. There are two episodes of Dukes I do want to cover. Happy Birthday, General Lee, which is one of my all-time favourite episodes. And there's another one where all the cast play earlier versions of themselves in like the civil war or just after the civil war or something that's a really good episode as well um okay what you know you want to do that episode let me know if you need me to be luke to your bow for that one i'm down with another crossover g mate after after our fall guy episode i'm i'm totally up with that thank you for that gene um gene also does a, a colonial cousin to this show, The Hammer Strikes, which is also on Two True Freaks, along with Pop Culture Affidavit. So, between the three of us, you've got pop culture covered right here on TwoTrueFreak.com. That was professional of me, wasn't it? Palace of Glittering Delights, episode 75 on the jazz is from Oliver Villa. Hello, Oliver. No, heard from Oliver for a while. Andy! Finally got a chance to listen to the latest episode about one of my favourite shows of all time, The A-Team. It was the summer of 1983, and after seeing Rocky Three on HBO, I wanted to see what this A-Team show was all about. As a 10-year-old, I was relieved to see that Mr. T was playing a good guy instead of a villain, as he was in said Rocky film. My first episode was a summer repeat of the first season episode, Till Death Do Us Part. What got me hooked on that night was the interaction between B.A. and Murdoch. I found Murdoch to be hilarious, but wasn't aware yet that he was a crazy fool from that one episode. 
I continued on to the second season, but then for some reason I stopped watching during the third. However, I did watch only one episode of the fourth season, which was the first of two appearances for Hulk Hogan, who was written into the show as having served in Vietnam with the team. Unfortunately, I watched most of the final season, which was very different, obviously. Then, by 1987, the show had disappeared after airing on Sundays, midway into the season. I was able to acquire the series season by season on DVD as they came out, and found that I enjoyed season 3 more than I did the other seasons. I would say that season 4 is my second favourite. That season would be the season where most episodes found the team looking for trouble more than they were being hired, as shown in the episode Waiting for Insane Wayne. I loved season 3's breakout, which spotlighted B.A. and Murdoch getting wrongly arrested and making escape. You mentioned the fact that in later years George Papard and Mr. T weren't getting along, and I remember one moment around 1986 when someone told me about that. To this day, I can't watch any scene with B.A. and Hannibal without knowing how things stood between them off-camera. Just like Starsky and Hutch, the A-Team won me over due to not only the action, but the humour and characterisation. Really enjoyed it. Keep up the good work, Oliver. Well, thank you very much, Oliver. It's very much appreciated. Yeah, um, I, I, that's, I think that's how the A-Team is best viewed today. It's a live-action cartoon. You know, to take it seriously is to kind of miss the point. And I also think it's, it's, it's like the Punisher in Marvel Comics. To over-analyse the Punisher and his motivations and his methods and such is to miss the point of the character. The character is just a pulp revenge fantasy. And if you don't like that, that's fine. You don't have to read it. But to overanalyze a character like the Punisher, I think, is to take away from the enjoyment factor of the Punisher, which, like I say, is just pure, balls-out revenge fantasy. It's the same with the A-Team. You can't overanalyze the A-Team. It was what it was, which was a live-action cartoon that didn't want to do anything other than entertain. And... I personally think it achieves that goal. I can sit and watch pretty much any episode of the A-Team and find some enjoyment in it and probably get a good laugh at Dwight Schultz. Finally tonight, to clear out the email sack once and for all, Mark Adams has emailed in with On The Jazz. I recently had the distinct pleasure of talking with Mark on Fantasticast when he joined us for a recent annual that we covered over there. So go and check that episode out. I love it when a podcast comes together. That's another one. I love that. And I very much enjoyed your ramble through what must be the biggest, iconic early 80s TV show. The A-Team came to TV just at the right time for me as a young lad. I remember especially enjoying the last season, which was looked down on by many. Cast forwards to a few months ago when one of the UK backwards TV channels was showing all the episodes from the beginning, and I took a chance to watch every episode. Would that be Forces TV by any chance, Mark? Uh, I wasn't expecting much, something to have on in the background, but I ended up really enjoying the show. I'd never seen the pilot, but knew about Face being another actor. I know that some of the episodes were basically the same. Some of them, Mark. You've been very generous there, mate. But I do not remember the chemistry... But I did not remember, sorry, the chemistry that the actors shared. I even had my daughters join me for a few episodes from behind their phones with, with little or no grumbling... The big surprise was how good some of the episodes were, and also how few. Cat, I need you to move out the way or I can't read Mark's email. The big surprise was how good some of the episodes were, and also how very few were actually bad. But then I came to the last season. I enjoyed the three-part opening story, but soon realised that my fandom of this season as a child did not hold up as an adult. Maybe I'd watched too many episodes too close together, maybe the quality did drop off and some of the acting was lacklustre, or maybe Babylon 5 was being re-shown elsewhere and I put my time there. But I decided it wasn't worth the watch for season 5, so there ended my indulgent journey down memory lane. 
Thank you for sharing your thoughts on the A-Team and the background research which added life to my nostalgia. Mark from Mark's Mess Podcasts, and you're very, very welcome, Mark. Um, always nice when a, an offbeat episode like the A-Team goes down well. You're never too sure with a show like this that uh, am I just going to be talking to empty air? Because absolutely no one has any interest in the thing I want to talk about this week. Um, but I, I, I try and balance it, you know, with Star Trek episodes and comic episodes and, and populist stuff. Not that I think I cover anything that's, you know, highbrow. I don't, I don't think Star Trek, you know, it's highbrow. But it's fun. It's a fun show. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed the Lethal Weapon episode that I've just done. I'm glad that a lot of people seem to get something out of the A-Team episode. Uh, I've got some irons in the fire for what to do next. I think it may be another one of those potpourri episodes where I cover a lot of different things um, and see what happens. But you never know. Something else may strike my fancy. Also, email in if there's a specific thing you'd like me to cover that was in, is within the remit of the show. Somebody recent on Facebook recently mentioned Salvage One, which is a 1970s TV movie that I am not aware of. So whether or not that'll happen, I don't know. I may be able to see if I can watch it on YouTube and, and see what occurs. But certainly suggesting things like that isn't beyond the realms of possibility on this show. And once again, the cat has decided to sit in front of my laptop screen. So I am now winging it. And the cat decided to step on the stop button. So that's why that little bit there ended abruptly. Palace of Glittering Delights is a two true for each presentation. And you can keep the lights on with uh, this show and all the others on the network. Not just the other two that I've mentioned today, which would be the Hammer Strikes and Pop Culture Affidavit. But every other show on this illustrious network can benefit from your help. We don't ask for Patreon supportage, but we do ask that if you go and buy it from Amazon, which, you know, you probably do, probably need some handcuffs or whatever, um, you do it through the Amazon link on the 2 Trophy webpage, and that donation that comes from that, which costs you nothing, isn't that a bargain? Cost you nothing, helps us keep all of this stuff running and doesn't make us have to pay anything, which, you know, is good. Because if I had to pay for this, I wouldn't be doing it. Okie dokie. Thank you very much. It was a joy to sit behind the microphone again for an hour and it was lovely to hear from the people that emailed in and it's lovely to hear from the people on Facebook and it's just lovely. Everyone's lovely. Everything is awesome. And everything is going to be all right. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.